like to ask if you would to please stand uh, together as we read from Colossians this morning, which is the passage Pastor Wayne will share from us, share for us. Um, it reads this way, beginning with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Pastor Wayne comes forward now to share from your word, we ask that you would bless him, give him clear recall of the, of the text that he's prepared for this past week. We ask that you would open each of our eyes, our ears, our hearts to your word, and we ask that you would make this passage of scripture become more alive and more real in each of our lives today. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ron Brown, the uh, former running backs coach and now senior analysis for the players at Nebraska, uh, said not long ago that Christ is not a prominent figure in his life. He is preeminent. In other words, Christ is not, belief in Christ is just, it's not something that he's added to his life. But who he is in Christ is at the very core of his being, of his life. And I thought, well, that would be a good title for today's message, prominent or preeminent. You know, as we continue through our, our study, you'll remember that uh, Paul is writing to a church under the attack from humanists, embracing what would later be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a mystical approach to life that questioned the deity of Christ. Now, they knew that man can't come into being by happenstance. So they, they, they claimed that God did not create the universe because God is holy and everything that is physical is evil. And so what he did, according to the Gnostics, is he created lesser gods who created lesser gods, who created lesser gods, until you get down to the demiurge. That's the Latin word for craftsman. And it's the demiurge that was so far down the line from this holy God that he was evil. And it was he who creates the universe. Now that was the, the main theory of that day. So according to the Gnostics, is Christ, having entered humanity, could not be God. I mean, you can't be physically evil and spiritually good at the same time. So they claim that Christ is merely a rung in the ladder of created beings. Now, the church knew that Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So the issue had to do with, is Christ prominent among religions, as humanists within Gnosticism would say, or is he preeminent? You know, next week we celebrate our independence, 4th of July. 
our freedom from oppressive rule, taxation without representation. Did you realize that the 4th of July is a milestone in history going back well before 1776? Goes all the way back to 325 AD. It was on July 4th, 325 AD. 300 church leaders gathered in a small town called Nicaea. I put an arrow here. Amy put an arrow pointing to the location of, of Nicaea. And the reason that they were meeting there is because of all these heresies that were, that were attacking the various churches. And the one guy that was causing probably the most stir of any of them was a guy named Arius. Influenced by Gnosticism, I mean, Arius was taking what the culture was saying and trying to, to amalgamate it to the scriptures. And in so doing, he was distorting the truth. He became a heretic. He said, Christ cannot be of the same eternal essence as the Father. That's exactly what the Gnostics were saying. But that he was created by God. So the issue was, are all the Old Testament scriptures that are fulfilled in Christ, are they true? Are all the New Testament scriptures recorded theonoustos through the eyewitnesses of Christ's ministry, including his death, burial, and resurrection, are they true? Or is Arius true? Is Arius' theory correct? Well, there's a fellow by the name of Athanasius who proved that the transcendent attributes and the miraculous power of Christ provided irrefutable evidence of his divinity. And by entering humanity, he did not become evil. He merely set aside his glory for the redemption of man, just as the Lord had promised in the Garden of Eden. So he is fulfilling scripture. Well, the emperor Constantine said, look, this issue needs to be resolved once and for all. I mean, I can't have Arius out here and all of his followers and everybody that's believing what he's teaching. I can't have them also teaching what the culture is teaching, going against what the scriptures are teaching. Well, we've got to deal with this. Because if I don't, it's going to cause divisiveness within the empire. I've got to maintain unity. So, so he has these 300 church leaders come together to issue a final decisive statement according to truth. So church leaders met July 4th, 325 AD in Nicaea, which you can see is just northeast of Colossae. And they're there to provide a statement of faith based on the truth of Scripture. That he is not homo eusia, of similar essence, but homo same usia, homo usia, of the same eternal and divine essence. Begotten, not created. God of God. Now keep in mind, this was not their opinion. Arius is giving his opinion. They did not give an opinion. This was their conclusion based on facts. They are simply acknowledging and confirming the accuracy and infallibility of the eyewitness testimonies of Scripture. And just to give you a little footnote to help you remember this, there was a guy who attended that meeting who had said, punched Arius in the face. He got that angry. Nailed him, decked him. His name was Nicholas. 
He was a pastor in Myra, which is just southwest of Colossae. It's there in the Lycus Valley, as were the churches that, that are being addressed by this letter. And uh, he will later be known for his generosity in his celebration of the incarnation of Christ. So you'll know him as St. Nicholas. Yeah. And many years later, up in the Netherlands, the Dutch will call him Claus. And if you want to know the rest of the story, ask your children. But spiritual warfare never ends, never ends. Attacks on the deity of Christ continue to this day. We've got liberal professors in seminaries from coast to coast. New age thinkers, religious cults by the millions. Whereby this idea of a holy God entering humanity to redeem fallen men, it's just an abomination. I mean, Islam considers it to be a blasphemous notion. The seeds for this, this continuous attack on the deity of Christ are what Paul is addressing in this letter. This is where it begins. After he says, we're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, explains who this beloved son really is. Let me ask you, could you defend, in the presence of a well-trained cult member, could you defend the, the uh, divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ? Could you? Here's your outline. You should be able to do it when you leave here this morning. The relation of Christ to the Father prior to creation is verse 15. The relation of Christ to the creation, verses 16 and 17. And the relation of Christ to the new creation, verse 18. So let's quickly look at verse 15. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. You know, Christ said in uh, John 4, God is spirit. He's invisible. He can't be seen except through the incarnation of Christ. That's the eyewitness testimony of John. No one has seen God, the only God. He has made him known. He is the icon. He is the begotten of the Father. That word means the only one of his kind. There's never been anyone else who was fully God and fully man. Christ is the exegesis of God. Now, how is that possible? Paul uses this word icon, from which we get the word icon. He's, he's the visible image of he who is invisible. He's, he's a physical snapshot. Yet he's not just a visible representation. He reveals the entire essence of who God is, who is invisible. That's why the Hebrew writer says he is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. Now let me just quickly this morning, we will go through this very quickly. Let me give you four ways the Lord reveals himself. We start in Genesis 1. What's Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul addresses this in Romans 1. He said, what can be known about God is plain to them. Talking about all men. Why? Because he's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, all men, are without excuse. 
I mean, to look at the universe and deny there's a cause when it operates not according to chaos, but cosmos. I mean, it's so orderly, you set your watch by it, right? How can that happen by chance? Can it? No, it can't. That's not science. Science is empirical evidence that you can observe. The evidence for an intelligent design goes beyond the cosmological facts, beyond the ontological facts. Let's just deal with one example this morning. Look at the encoding of the DNA molecule. Did you realize that in each one of you, there are around 37 trillion cells? A little more in some of you than others, but that's an average. And if we were to take just one cell out of those 37 trillion of you, just one, 37 trillion, one, and we unrolled it, all the genetic information there, we unrolled it, that one cell that the Lord programmed that makes you unique to all other men on earth would cover 300 billion football fields. One cell out of 37 trillion unraveled, the DNA unraveled, the DNA molecule, 300 billion football fields. The complexity of which confirms what the psalmist wrote. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, Lord, that my soul knows very well. I mean, you have to be spiritually blind to look at the universe and claim that it just happened. You're without excuse. I mean, maybe you heard about the group of scientists who informed the Lord that he was not necessary for creation to exist. And so the Lord challenged them to a creative contest, and they foolishly agreed. And to get started, the lead scientist grabbed a handful of dirt, and the Lord said, no, 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 no. Use your own dirt. And the scientists complained, well, i, I got to start with something. And the Lord said, that's fine, but you can't start with what I've created. The Lord has made himself known through his creation. All men are without excuse. Second way he's made himself known is by the final act of creation. What's that? What was the final act of creation? Before he rests in the fact that he ceases to create anyone. Man. That's Genesis 2. Man was created with a sense of morality, with a conscience. Now, you can sear that conscience with your sin, but you were created with a conscience, with the ability to reason, with emotion, with creativity. So in man, you see the image of the one who created him. But the question is, why? Why, if God is holy, and he created man, is man by nature not holy? See, that's what the Gnostics didn't understand. Well, that's Genesis 3. You've got to keep reading your Bible. Man is created with a will that is free to rebel. The Lord did not create him to be a puppet. This is the reason the Lord reveals himself through his word. That's the third way that he reveals himself. This is the whole reason after the Tower of Babel that he calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out from the gods of their fathers in order to reveal through them 
the truth. How their sin has alienated them from their creator. And how through them, the Lord gives us his word revealing not only himself, but his means of redemption for fallen men who don't deserve it. He reveals himself in his word and also how he reconciles men to himself through, and this is the fourth way he reveals himself, through the word made flesh. Christ coming incarnate. He's the visible imprint of him who is invisible. Isn't that how our study through the Gospel of John began? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, that's why Christ said in, in John 10, I and the Father are one. And He said to, to Philip, did He not? John 14, whoever has seen me Seen me, has seen the Father. We are one. See, that's Orthodox Christianity. You, you see the glory of God through his creation. You see the truth of who he is in his word. And you see the essence of who he is in the word made flesh, the icon. So see, there is a difference between man who is created in God's image and Christ who is the image of God. The only begotten, one of a kind. Thus he is preeminent for four reasons that puts to rest the nonsense of man's theories. Here's number one. He is the firstborn by rank. He is number two, the creator of all creation. Number three, he is the goal of all creation. And number four, he is the sustainer of all creation. Look at the end of verse 15. This is the favorite verse of Jehovah Witnesses. They love it. Christ is the firstborn. They said, see, right there it shows he was created. Born first. Gnostics, Arians, all those that, that were led astray by the, those heretics. Throughout the centuries, are they right? Are they right or not? Well, first of all, we think of firstborn as being the one born first, and sometimes that's what it means. I'm the firstborn of my parents. But in the Old Testament, that term firstborn had to do with preeminence. Say, so how's that? Well, let me give you an example. Exodus 4. Israel is referred to as firstborn. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. What's he mean, firstborn? Were they the first nation on earth? Well, of course not. They're not born until years after the Tower of Babel. When the languages are confused and the nations are all scattered. They don't come until much later. So what does that mean? It means they're unique. They're preeminent. As people chosen by the Lord for a purpose, they are preeminent. So you got to remember Paul. I mean, he's a brilliant student of Scripture. He was, he, he was trained in the, in the uh, school of Gamaliel. He's an Old Testament scholar. And so he uses this Old Testament term to make clear the preeminence of Christ, as the psalmist did in Psalm 89, in reference to King David. The Lord says, I will make him the firstborn. Was David the firstborn of, of Jesse? No. He was the eighth son of Jesse, the youngest. 
Now, some of you are going to say, well, in one place in the Bible, it says he was the seventh son. Yes, one of his brothers died. But he was the last. He was the last of Jesse's sons. He was not the first son. He was not the first king on earth. He wasn't even the first king of Israel. That was Saul. So, so what does it mean, I will make him the firstborn? Scripture explains Scripture. The Lord doesn't leave you in mystery. So you keep reading. He tells you, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, he's going to be preeminent among kings. It's going to be through him the Messiah will come. So to say, well, firstborn indicates that Christ is a created being demonstrates a lack of knowledge. At best, and an abuse of scripture at worst. Well, how can we know for sure this is how Paul uses the term? How can we know for sure? Well, look at the context. What's the text say? Verse 16, it begins with hati. Four. Instead of imposing a Gentile understanding of firstborn on the text, like Jehovah Witnesses and other heretics do, the, the context defines it for you. For, here's your definition, for... This is what firstborn means. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created everything, ex nihilo. That's Latin. Ex, out, nihilo, nothing. Out of nothing. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat without a rabbit or a hat to start with. By his will, he spoke. And something from nothing came into being. Now, what, how, do, how do we phrase that and say? He is the cause. Creation is the effect. It is a fact of science that you can't have an effect greater than its cause. You can't have a creation without a creator causing it. You can't have something come from nothing unless, unless something causes it. Therefore, Christ cannot be a created being, given he is the one by whom all things were created. So he has to predate creation. Created beings cannot create matter, nor can they destroy it. That's the first law of thermodynamics. That's something the Gnostics did not learn from their mysticism. I mean, this is one of the purposes for why Christ feeds the masses, the 20 to 30,000 people, creating food on the spot. It's why he, he healed the man with the withered hand. It's why the, the lame were able to walk, the blind were able to see by his spoken word. Why? He's the creator. Why did he do those miracles? He's confirming his deity. So firstborn of all creation speaks to the self-existing, self-sustaining deity of Christ that predates creation. The Latin term for that is a seity of God. I don't know if that's a new word for some of you or not, but it's A-S-E-I-T-Y. A-S-E-I-T-Y. What's it mean? Self-existing, self-sustaining. The Lord expresses this to Moses when he says who shall I tell them has sent me Lord he said you tell them I am who I am Yahweh 
That's the aseity of God. Christ is the firstborn of creation who causes all that exists. Firstborn in the sense that in his rank, he is preeminent, preeminent. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Not just that which is physical, that which is metaphysical. See, Gnostics claim that Christ was an angel. Paul says, not so. That's not true. Don't listen to them. Christ is the one who created angels. That's why at the incarnation of Christ, it's angels that come to announce his coming. Luke 2. At his resurrection, it's angels who come to proclaim that he is risen. John 20. That's why at his ascension, it's angels who are present to announce it in Acts 1. It's why angels will be with him when he returns in Matthew 24. Why? He created angels for ministry, according to Hebrews 1.14. Even fallen angels acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God, in Mark 1. But those that were not cast out with them, and Lucifer, Beelzebub, those angels sustained by God's grace are seen throughout Scripture doing what? They're always praising God. They're always worshiping the Lord. They're always rejoicing in the goodness in mercy of who he is. And we see them fulfilling answers to prayers, Acts 12. We see them encouraging God's people in times of danger, Acts 27. We see them caring for them in times of death, Luke 16. Why? That's why Christ created them. They are ministering servants. So not only is Christ creator of all that is visible, but that which is invisible. And now he gives you the ranks of angels. Here, here you go. I mean, this is, this is what the Gnostics had done, all these emanations, right? He says it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is an Old Testament reference regarding the ranks of angels. Paul says the teaching of Gnostics is truly foolishness. Christ is not one of the many emanations from God. He is the creator and sustainer who is sovereign over all things, including the creation of angels. And not only did he create all things, but all things were created for him, for his honor, his glory, his praise. He alone is worthy. He's the goal of creation. Why? Because he's eternally holy. That's why he's alone worthy of honor and praise. So one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, in heaven and on earth will call him Lord. He's the Alpha and Omega of creation, Revelation 22. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think, had a profound observation of this, and probably if you've been worshiping for very long, you've, you've probably heard this before. You know, but his, his point, I think, is well taken. You know, he says, look, Christ is either a liar I mean, he, he knew that he was not God, but he claimed to be. Or, I mean, he was an absolute lunatic. I mean, he really thought that he was God, but he wasn't. Or, he is the Lord, the icon, the word made flesh. But as Lewis points out, there's no room for this nonsense about him being merely a good man or an angel. 
I mean, this stuff that the liberals are teaching, this stuff that, that the cults are believing, there's no place for it in biblical theology. The Old Testament said Messiah is God. Is the Old Testament right? Christ said, I and the Father are one. Did he tell the truth? The Holy Spirit, through Paul, said he is God. Did the Holy Spirit of truth lie? The book of Revelation says he is God. Therefore, if he is not, the Bible can't be true. It cannot be a holy book. It cannot be trusted. We've got to destroy it. And once we have destroyed the Bible, we have now destroyed all revelation as to how we are reconciled to the one who created us that we have alienated ourselves from in our sin. So now we are left to die in doubt and with despair. We have no hope. But in no way can we say the Bible is holy and good if Christ is merely prominent among all men. If he's merely a good man and he's not God. The way of the liberals, the way of religions, the way of cults is just not an option for us. And if that's not enough, look at verse 17. Here's the apex of the argument. This is in the perfect tense, which means it's something already happened in the past that continues in the present. If he ever stops being God, if he ever ceases to sustain that which he has created, everything will disintegrate. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The word hold together there, Sunni staken, can be seen within the atom. Now, I want, I want to explain this up front, that science is not my forte. I was a math major. Uh, I, I did take uh, chemistry and physics in college uh, in Milligan, but, but only because of the mathematical elements there. I am by no means an expert in this field. And so I don't want to get too technical. I'm going to keep this very, very simple, or I'll get in over my head. I mean, one of the guys in our first service, his wife was a, a nuclear physicist. You know, we've got others in, in this service, too, that are, are much more proficient in science than, than I am. So let me just try to explain this in, in very layman terms. Within the nuclei of atoms, I mean, we all, even in middle school and high school, have got this, right? Within the nuclei of atoms are neutrons and protons, right? The electrons are bound to the nuclei by an electromagnetic force. The electrostatic repulsion, what, what scientists call the weak force, would literally drive the nucleus of atoms apart if it were not for the strong force. Now see, this is what they can empirically observe. They can see this, that's science. They know what happens. What they don't know is why it happens. You've got the weak force and it's held together by the strong force. So accelerated electrons that circle the nucleus, if they were to quickly radiate all their energy, the electrons would fall into the nucleus unless there's an invisible energy source 
the strong force to counter it, to counteract it. In other words, if the Lord were to relax his grasp upon Adam's, if he were to do that, and the entire universe is made up of atoms, every atom would explode by fire, nuclear fire. Therefore, our moment-by-moment existence is dependent upon his gracious sustenance. I mean, every electron, every atom, every molecule made up of atoms are sustained by the one who created them, who created all things visible and invisible. You see, the facts of science and the truth of Scripture do not disagree. It's man's theories that begin with the premise, there is no God. So let me see if I can explain what I'm observing with my premise being there is no God. And there's where they come up with their nonsense and they label it science. It's not science, it's their theories about science. High energy particles and solar winds continually travel towards Earth at speeds beyond a million miles per hour. And we're totally unaware of it. And all we, we talk about is the heat, you know. It's 90 today. 90. Coming from light that emanates from a dwarf star, G2 dwarf star, that's 93 million miles away. So that light that we come to take for granted every day has been traveling for over eight minutes by the time it gets to us. And we're totally unaware, totally unaware of, of, of the debris that comes off of the sun, the debris that comes throughout space, how the Lord sovereignly protects us with a magnetic force, the magnetic field that comes from the molten core of the earth, that which he preserves our ozone layer and our water supplies. It's this same magnetic field that protects us that animals use to orient themselves. It's what enables them to sense weather-related danger. When there's a tsunami coming, animals head for the hills. Only man stands on the beach and goes, I wonder what that is. Man can pollute the earth but he can't destroy it. He can't destroy it. Viruses, plagues, they can't end man's existence. The earth will never cease to turn on its axis. The earth will never fly out of its orbit and wander into space. Why? Because he who created it Sustains it. Now, granted, I, we, I will admit that the planet that we have is not the planet we had due to the curse of sin. That's Genesis 3. So we will have tornadoes. We will have hurricanes. We will have tsunamis. We will have earthquakes. But, but there's nothing happening tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the next day that will take the creator of all of it, who sustains it, will take it 
taken by surprise. It just won't happen. There is nothing beyond his sovereign ability to use everything that happens, even things that we consider to be bad, use everything that happens for his glory. He works it all together for our benefit in some way and for his glory. He is the creator and the sustainer, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, why does he put that in there in verse 18? This, this expression, the body, is frequently used for the church to give us a visual picture because we, we, we know how our physical bodies function. We, we've got many members, arms, legs, hands, feet, mouth, all that, and it all operates from direction that comes from the head. And so that's the way Christ's body, those born again of him and in him, are to function on earth. That's why we do not have a controlling board here. Because men are not the head of this church. That's the reason we do not have a pastor-led church. I am not in charge here. As a matter of fact, if you've got a question, if it's about Scripture, I'll be glad to help you. If it's about your walk with the Lord, I'll be glad to help you. But beyond that, I'm not the guy to come see. There's a lot that goes on I know nothing about. Nothing. And this is not a congregationally led church. We're not going to be blown about by everybody's differing opinions. We're going to function as the body of Christ. Who he is the head. Say, well, yeah, that sounds great in theory, but I mean, how does that work out practically? It works out very well. Christ being the head rules by the authority of his word. So if you want to know how we are to function, read his word. And you'll find that what he has to say about elders is what our elders do. They oversee the spiritual development and direction of the church. You want to know why we have deacons? Look why they were created. What did they do? What are our deacons doing? They are overseeing service ministries. That's the whole purpose for a deacon. You want to know what you as a member of the church is supposed to be doing? Read your Bible. He tells you how you're to serve, how you're to give, how you're to live. If Christ is the head of his body, and he is, then he rules by the authority of his word. So when the text says he is the beginning, what does that mean? I think one theologian put it very well. He said it's the beginning of a new era. I mean, man in his sin, who was spiritually blind to God, now sees. It's a new beginning. In the beginning, Christ spoke, and out of darkness came the physical creation. Christ now speaks through his word, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, out of darkness, men become new creations. And you remember back in verse 15 what the word firstborn meant, preeminent? It means the same thing in verse 18. Christ was not the first brought back from the grave when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Actually, he's the one who raised Jairus' daughter in Matthew 9. He's the one who raised the, the widows uh, from uh, Nain, her, her son, in Luke 7. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. 
So what does this mean? He is the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection is preeminent. All those that came back from the grave that he raised from the dead, they all died again. That's not going to be true of Christ. In his deity, he is eternal. In his humanity, he is holy. He's without sin. Proving by his resurrection, he is preeminent. Not only within the physical creation, but the spiritual creation. And that's why people who are born again of him, people who are born again in him, by him, can live in a world full of bigotry. Can live in a world full of racism and hatred. And they will live in that world, but they will not live of that world. Why? Because they are united in his love. Born again in him for his glory. And because he is their head, he is preeminent in their life. They are new creations. Are we clear on this? I mean, I've run out of time, so I, I can't elaborate on it anymore. But do you know the difference now between being prominent and being preeminent? If you don't, go home and let your wife explain it to you. I mean, here's what you do. You take her a bouquet of flowers and you give her a box of candy. And you, you explain to her how much you love her. And that those, those flowers and that candy are an indication of just how prominent she is in your life. That of all the other women that you love and that you date and that you go out with, she is the best of the bunch. And after you get your nose to stop bleeding and your lip is stitched up, she'll sit you down and explain the difference between her being preeminent, the only one, and being prominent among all the other women that you love. She'll help you understand it. This is why Ron Brown said what he said. This is what he's talking about. Christ came, he died, he rose again, revealing he is preeminent. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man, I wonder who, how many that includes, no man comes to the Father but through him. He is not prominent among all the good men of history. He's not prominent among all the religions of the earth. He is not prominent of all the emanations that come forth from God. That's Gnosticism. He is the firstborn. He's unique. He's preeminent. To be born again of him means that he is not prominent in your life. He's preeminent in every aspect. Is that true of you? Is it? If it's not, I mean, you might not be a Christian. Now, if you have questions, we'll be glad to help with that. That's why we have the connect table back there. You can go back. Somebody will, will help you get connected to whoever you need to get connected with um, to, um, to help you work through this.